Last week we uh, started into this um, section on theatra. And if you're, if you're just joining us, I'm going to just do a little bit of a recap because I think that this particular church is very, very helpful for us today. Um, the church in Theatra was a church that was, was commended by Jesus for a lot of what it was doing right. And just a reminder to you, the, the words that stand out to me uh, at the end of verse number 19 uh, under the commendation, as Jesus is looking at the church saying, here's what you do well. The words that stand out to me are this, that, that your latter works exceed the first. All right, that your latter works exceed the first. How old is peace? How many years old is peace? Okay, 38, 39 years old. Okay. So, so uh, what happens in churches is um, if you follow the life cycle of a church, quite often churches begin with a sense of explosion, right? Some group of people get together and they say, you know what, we have a need here. And I got to experience that in a really, really cool way uh, a couple of times in my life. The first time was in Lincoln. And uh, I pull up into this parking lot and uh, here's this gymnasium and here's these crazy Nebraskans and they're like, we're going to start a church right here. We're going to get it going, right? They were kind of a plant church. And so I got into this room and there were like 25 people in the room and I'm like, we're it. We, we, we've got a mission here to go out into this community. And I, I'm not making this up. On Sundays, I would stand up in front of that, the, the big group of 25 and I'd say, we're going to make calls today. Terry, you've done this a lot of times. Twice. Let's go out and make calls. And you know what? At least half of everybody would come back that day. So about 50% of the congregation. Now today, if I stood up in front of Peace and I said, this afternoon we're going to go knock on doors across the street, would 50% of, of the congregation come back to knock on doors? What happens to churches? is it's kind of like you get a kitten. You know, like, oh, I love this kitten. It's cute. It's like, then it becomes a cat. You're like, get, get rid of the cat. We need, this is another kitten, right? <laughs> Churches are like that. They, they, they start off, they're like, they're, they're going after it. There's fire, there's passion. And then they just kind of get into this rut. And we do things this way and we do it over and over and over and over this way. And you know what? Not good. Not good. Good. Here's, here's what I pray for for this body of people right here. And I, I am praying for it is explosion, gospel explosion, fire. You know, live with the fire of Pentecost, of the Spirit of God in you all times, right? Because that's what this church is doing. Your, your works, your latter works exceed your first one. You know, very unusual. And that's why Jesus is commending it. Okay. So I think on that hand, a very critical church for us to look at is Theatra because it says to us, never get in a rut. Never just say, this is the way we do it. But look at how do you explode this church out of the box and into the community and, uh, uh, and, and make it real for people. Take the hope of Jesus Christ. Get it into people's lives and into families. Second reason that this church, to me, is so relevant is this word, tolerant. Tolerant. Okay? So, when Jesus is talking to this church, he, 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 he kind of turns the conversation. You've done all these things well, but this I have against you. That you tolerate, this is verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed 
to idols. Okay. So we drew this picture on the board last week, this circle right here. And if you will, allow it to stand for the covenant that we have with our God. In the Old Testament, that covenant was very clear. Israel, you are, you are not to marry, right, women outside of Israel and bring them into the community. Why? Were they prejudiced? No. Wasn't a matter of prejudice. Did, did they say, well, we're just better than these other communities? No. We've got a covenant relationship with God. Here, here's what God said, Israel, I'm setting you apart to be that body of people through which I bring others to me. If you start marrying outside of this community and allowing the, the ways of culture outside of this community to come into Israel, here's what's going to happen. You, you will become more like the world and no longer usable. If salt loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing but to be thrown out. You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. Therefore, I will spew you out of my mouth. When we become like the culture, we become useless to God. In the New Testament era, the way it gets taught, very simply, is this. You are, you are in the world, help me finish this, but not of the world. Okay, there's one more part to it that a lot of people miss. Okay. Paul Robbie in, uh, in St. Louis really put this into my mind some years ago, and I love it. He says, you are in the world and not of the world, but you are for the world. That last part's important. In other words, I, I'm not going to become like the world, not because I'm better than it, but because God said, Luke, your family, your household, is to be for this neighborhood. Because God said, Peace Lutheran Church, you're to be for this Grand Island community. If you start looking like the culture, how in the world are you going to make any difference? Okay. So Pastor John, when he was here Wednesday night, threw out this, this uh, kind of telling statistic that uh, here just a couple of weeks ago, 50 pastors of churches sign off on uh, a petition to say, hey, we're going to support same-sex marriage. You just became like the world. Your salt that just lost its saltiness, throw it out. What good are you? You became like the world. What difference does it make? How, how can I help you change your life if I'm, if I'm like the culture? I can't. I have nothing to offer you. All we have is the hope and the word of Jesus Christ that I want to bring into people's lives. Okay? So when, when the reference to Jezebel is made here, what, what, the, what Jesus is doing is he's reminding the church in Theatra of, of an incident that happens all the way back right in 2 Kings where a king, Ahab, marries this pagan woman, Jezebel. And Jezebel does what? She comes into Israel and she introduces them to, to, to Baal worship. Baal is a fertility god, right? Goes kind of hand in hand with Asherah who is the, is the fertility goddess. And, and the way that the pagans practice their religion is they, they would, right, unite sexually together in a, in a way that would say, we, we believe that we receive, you know, some type of power from the gods of fertility, Asherah and Baal, and, and that is who makes us as a community fertile and therefore rich, right? 
And so she brought this practice into Israel. And so I love this word, a face. It's a Greek word. That is the word that we use for uh, tolerate. And what I love about it is the picture of it is, is kind of is kind of telling. Aphase is a word made up of two words. You can draw a line right down the middle. Off, apo means to be upon. Ace, ace means into. And so if you draw that circle, you would say it like this. The world is upon you. When it enters into you, you have now lost your saltiness, right? And so the word tolerate means that I let that which is upon me into me. It's very real for our household. It's real for your household. If you stop and you honestly think about what are ways that right now in my life, I mean, I, I, I do it. We all do it. What are ways in my life that I've let the culture come into me? What are ways? And sometimes it's very subtle. And we think, ah, oh, that's not, that not going to matter. Yeah, it does. All right. So God is constantly calling us, uh, not, not in a law way, in a gospel way, in a Jesus way, to constantly look at where are things, what are things going on in my life that are really compromising my relationship with Jesus Christ that don't allow me to be for the world anymore. So I'm losing my saltiness. And the same thing is true in the church corporately. All right? Now, I think some of these words that are spoken next are, are pretty pretty straightforward, tough words to this church, all right? So go to verse number 21. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Okay, so let's put this just in real terms. We believe that what's going on here in Theatra is Jezebel doesn't return from the dead, Right? So, so when Jesus says, you have this prophetess Jezebel in your midst who is leading my servants to practice sexual immorality, it's not Jezebel come back from the dead. Who is it? Well, we believe that it is a female prophetess who probably is part of what would have been called the, the Gnostic movement in the early New Testament time. Gnostic is a word that um, kind of derives its, its meaning from its root Gnosis, gnosis is knowledge, all right? So this is my gnosis right here, my thinker. Gnostic, that would be a group of people who would say, we, we deal in the deeper thoughts of God, the deeper thoughts of God. And so when you were invited into Gnosticism, the way it would typically happen is, I would say to you, if I were a Gnostic, I'd say, listen, a lot of these Christians are practicing a very superficial kind of Christianity. We're a group of people who likes to think deeper. And so if you join our group, we will take you into the deeper thoughts of God. Two different, two different sects of Gnostics. One of those sects was a group of people who said, here's how we're going to do it. In the deep, if you get into the deeper things of God, what you learn is that your flesh, your sarks, is evil. And that all material is evil. And so the objective of one of the two cults that made up Gnosticism was to try to free yourself from the sinfulness of your flesh and the world around you. And so they would practice uh, extreme flagellation, right? You're going to beat your body. You're going to, to discipline yourself. You're going to live a very... 
um, uh, austere type of a life so that you're separated from the world. And we will show you how to do that. These are the deeper secret things of God, how to free yourself from the flesh. That's one group. Oppositely, a second Gnostic sect said, no, that's not how you do it. If you get into the deeper things of God, what you learn is that you can actually separate your physical flesh from your spiritual self. And, and so the only thing that really matters to God is your spiritual self. The things of the flesh don't matter at all. And so for, the, for the, that particular sect, they believed that there was actually, actually some good to be derived from the continued pagan practice of sexuality inside of the church. This, this boggles our mind today. I get that. But if you go back into the Roman era and you look at temples, right? What was going on in those temples? Sex. Why? Well, because it was believed that if you had sex with a priestess, right, that during that moment of release, just to say it that way, you united with God spiritually. And so the, the, we believe that this particular Jezebel is a prophetess who's coming to the church, who's saying to the, to the people, hey, look, there's some deeper things of God, and it's okay to practice some of these pagan rituals because we know the real God. And when you unite and you, you join together, even with their, their prophetesses, don't worry about the physical self. Your spiritual self is uniting with the real God. So, you have that going on in the church. Should we tolerate that? You'd be like, yeah, but she's a pretty nice lady. I mean, she, you know, she she donated the uh, she donated the organ, and so you know we. No, you don't tolerate that. You don't say, well, no. What has to happen? Okay, we don't like to hear these words, but the word the word is metanoia. All right, metanoia. Repentance needs to happen. Okay. When, when the church has within it something that is taking people away from the very, the very truth of God, you don't sit back and say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, it is. You confront it. All right? Um, you rebuke it. Because it's satanic. And so when you rebuke something, you're rebuking someone, in our Western minds, we think, oh, that's terrible. You know, you're not supposed to make people feel bad. You need to make people feel good. No, rebuking is not about making people feel bad. It's about saying to someone, what you're doing is actually removing people from the ability to worship Jesus Christ. And you are now a pawn of Satan. Hard words, right? What's their intent? Repentance. To bring a person to that place where they're able to say, you're right. I've, I've, I've sinned. I've messed up. Now here's the interesting thing. Gnosis, right, is your mind. Now I want you to hear this word in Greek. Repentance is this. Metanoia. Change your mind. That's how, that's how repentance sounds in the Greek. Metanoia. It's a 180 degree turn in which God takes that which is in our mind and turns it towards himself. 
right? And so, so what's, what he's saying here is, God's saying, I am a God of grace. I gave her time to repent. I like that. I do like that. And I like it personally. Because here's what I've discovered about myself. Maybe you've discovered the same thing. There are some sins that get into your life that you absolutely, you, one day the Spirit taps you and says, do you see that? Yeah. Do you think that should stay in your life? No. And so what do you do? You're like, I repent. I repent of that. I, will, I, I give that to you, God. Uh, God, I will never do that again. How many of you have ever done this? I will never do that again. Like three days later, you're like, God, I did it again. <laughs> we all have that, right? That's why, that's why the Billy Graham crusade, you know, which I, which I love, um, People, people would come, repent, like, you'd have, you'd have people, you'd be like, uh, how many times have you uh, come up front to give your life to Jesus? Uh, 25. Okay, thank you very much. I mean, why? Well, because that's inside of us as we go back to it. And so I have given her time to repent means that over a course of time, the Spirit of God is seeking to change her, to change her, to change her, to change her. Now, here's the interesting words. Follow this. In your, in your English Bibles, I'm in the ESV translation. Verse number 20, 21, second half, it says, but she refuses to repent. Okay? What I love about the Greek is it uses the term thele, which means will. <clears throat> if I translated it into just raw English, it would sound like this. But she has set her will against it. She has set her will against it. Okay? We, we have... We have a will, right? And so what I know about myself is there are times when the Spirit of God is saying, Luke, I'm calling you to turn around. This is separating you from Jesus. It's making you useless to the world. Turn around. I set my will against that. I don't want to. I don't want to put that down. I don't want to walk away. My will is corrupt, right? And in fact, here's the beautiful thing about the term repentance. We tend to look at it, right, in evangelical Christianity as something that we do. And so all the revival preaching, you know, when you go back into American history and you just listen to sermons and you listen to crusades, sounds like this, repent, repent, right? And you hear that word, and it's, it's, it just, it's meant to crush me, right? You repent of that sin. Here's the reality. I can't. It's not possible for me, Luke, to turn around. I can't do it. The beautiful thing about the term repentance is it's a word that leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Repentance only happens in that moment when I surrender myself to God and I am able to say, I can't stop doing that. I can't stop thinking that. I can't do it. I've tried. I've come to you like a hundred times. I've said I'm going to stop. I can't do it. I surrender. Right? Now, in its extreme, and I shouldn't even say extreme, you know, the, the social sciences have discovered this. Right? So when you get into something like AA or Celebrate Recovery, What's the first thing that they tell you? Step number one of overcoming an addiction is doing what? I give up. I can't stop this. I will go back to this. 
That's, that's, that's repentance. It's coming to that place where I surrender to God, and now guess what? My will is no longer set against you because the Spirit of God changes that will inside of me. And I'm able to say, my will, my desire, God, is to walk with, with you. And I, I cannot do it apart from you. Would you turn me around? Would you turn me around? And so you put it all together and you really have a grace-filled God who's simply saying, I will give you time. I'm going to not just, I'm going to walk with you. He doesn't walk away from us simply because we sin. He walks with us. And we say, God, take me to that point where I surrender, turn me around, and make me something new. This woman would not do it. This woman holds on to her teachings inside of the church. So, these are very, some very severe words. Here's what Jesus says. Behold, 22, I will throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Okay. Now you have to read this in, in, in two different ways. All right. So, so kind of think of it like this. Here's the surface side of things. There's the physicality to this thing. Underneath the surface is the spiritual. And I want you to read it both ways. Start up here with the physical. I will throw her onto a sick bed. I've mentioned them a couple of times today. Let me now ask it as a question. At what point in the ministry life of Billy Graham did the culture turn against him? At what point? For years, even non-believers, right, in America, will look at Billy Graham with respect. Isn't that true? I mean, people that were atheists would look at Billy Graham and say, that guy's, he's, I mean, he's, he's out there, he's talking about what he believes in, I don't believe it, but you know what, I respect him. So my question to you is, at what point did culture really turn against Billy Graham? Want me to take you to that moment? It's kind of an interesting day when Billy Graham's son gets up in front of the cameras. And this is back in the 1980s when a particular issue was smacking America in the face. And this is what Franklin Graham said. I believe that AIDS is a punishment from God upon people. That did it. I mean, firestorm. For the next months, television, radio, newspapers, magazines railed against Billy Graham. How dare you say that AIDS is a punishment from God upon people? How dare you say that? And, and if you listen to side conversations, they would sound something like this. Well, not, every, not everybody you know, who gets AIDS you know, has done anything wrong. I mean, little children in the womb get AIDS. Innocent, little children, they haven't even been born yet. And it's passed on to them through the bloodline. They get, are you, is Billy Graham saying that, 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 that God's punishing them? No. Billy Graham's not up there saying, yeah, God's going to punish that little child who's in the womb. What is he saying, though? He's recognizing something. That when behavior, right, when, and not just our behavior, but our, our will, is set against God, we're going to do it our way. What does God do? Sit back and go, nope. 
He loves you way too much to do that. What does God bring into our lives whenever we're just going to continue walking away from him? Pain. Pain. Do we like it? No. Now, the world uses the term punishment. I don't. I would use a completely different world. I see what God is bringing into the lives of people is called rebuke. It has an intention to it. You know what the intention is? To turn people back to himself. Even if you die of AIDS, but you've repented and come to know him, guess what you have? Life eternal. Right? And so rebuke comes into people's lives with the intention of turning us back to him. Was Billy Graham's son wrong? On a physical level, this is kind of an interesting statement right here. I will throw her onto a sick bed. Do you know that from the, the time I came into this world to this very moment, one of the things that our American culture and our Western culture can't get rid of? Sexually transmitted diseases. Isn't that kind of interesting? That, that, that just by saying, we're going to do it our way, God, not your way, guess what happens? Over and over again, sick bed. When Anna and I got married, it worked a little bit differently than it does today. We had to go down and you had to sign, you know, you had to sign up for the, the marriage license. But before you did that, guess what you got? A blood test. What were they looking for? Syphilis. Nowadays, they go, well, we've controlled syphilis. Well, guess what? There's new strains of syphilis that are starting to pop up. Scares the fool out of me. You know why? Because it lays dormant inside of you. It lays dormant inside of you, and all of a sudden you have a child. It'll kill your child. It will kill your child. It'll kill you too. And so they used to check for that, blood check for that. Okay? Today, it's guess what? Herpes simplex 2. Yeah, what is that herpes? Yeah, it's just a, a it's just people, ah, I got that herpes thing, you know, it's just like I got to take some pills every once in a while. It's bad, but then it'll go away. Yeah. Simplex 2 can be passed on to your children. One of the toughest days of, of a person's life is when your child is born and affected by, guess what? Herpes simplex 2. I've seen it. I've had to sit in that hospital room with a mom bawling her head off because my child was born blind. And I did it. And she needed the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And she needed all of that. But let me just tell you, that, that, that none of that took away from her my kid's entire life. I mean, blind. Why? I will throw her onto a sick bed. Is it just a mean God going... I don't like to see all this stuff happen. No. It's a God who says, I will walk, walk with you and work with you in a way that I seek to turn you around. And sometimes, guess what? You're pretty stubborn. <coughs> Turning ain't happening so easy. So guess what? Pain. Pain. That's the physical level. I will throw her onto a sick bed. Now watch the spiritual level. It happens next. And he says... Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into the great tribulation. Tribulum, right, is what? It's that shaking. I'm going to put them into a place where they are shook up. All right? On the physical level, does that happen? Oh, yeah. 
on the spiritual level, a little bit deeper. God is speaking to me now at a different level. He's saying to me, will you walk with me? Will you give up? Will you surrender yourself to me? Or are you just going to continue to set your will against me? And he will shake me. And so I, I have people who come into my office all the time, and they're like, man, this is going on in my life, and this is going on in my life, and this is going on in my life. I don't know what God's trying to say to me. I go, I don't either, but I know this. God's trying to say something. Let's try to figure it out. Let's walk through it together. He's trying to talk to you. okay? Because he uses that. Last part of it, he says, and I will strike her children dead. Spiritual level. Here's what he's saying. The offspring of adultery, not physical adultery, spiritual adultery, is spiritual death. That's the offspring of it. So he's saying, this woman who's being tolerated in the church is giving birth to people who now no longer accept the truth. If they remain in that place, the, the result of it is her offspring, her children, the result of, 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 of coming together with that is death. Spiritual death forever. Right. So which is worse? Physical death? Spiritual death? Spiritual death. And that's what he's pointing to. He's saying, unless repentance occurs, unless we're turned around, if we continue to say, God, I don't need you, I don't need that cross, we die, not just physically, but our second death is a forever death, is a spiritual death. Her offspring, I will strike dead. And he's now taking us, in the whole rest of this section, he's taking us to the very end of time. Watch what he does. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. That's who I am. I'm searching. Your mind right now is being searched. Your heart is being searched. That's who God is. Doesn't deal on this superficial level. Comes up underneath that. All the churches will know. Right? So, so as a church, as a body, what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to know, to recognize that what God is doing in our world today is completely misunderstood and misinformed by the, the media of our time. When I read the newspaper and they're talking to me about what's going on in the world, they're talking at what level? Cultural level. Anything about God in it? Nope. So when I look at the newspaper or I watch the news, what my mind is always trying to do is to translate that into what's God doing, right? Because our world, our culture completely misses it. And when you look at it from the perspective of what God is doing, he's saying what the churches should know. All of my, all of my followers are going to see what's going on and you're going to know that I'm the, I'm the God who does what? That searches minds and hearts. The world will rail against me. And they do. But my church will know. No, that's what God is doing. So back to Billy Graham example. When Billy Graham went off, when Franklin Graham went off like that, and, and everybody, listen, it was popular in media to crucify him. That Franklin Graham and those stinking Baptists and who's the church to tell us how to live and you know what, we're not going to take it anymore. You know, I'm just sitting back watching all that going, He's a guy that searches minds and hearts. 
And he is doing that right now in a big way. And his intention is right and good, and it's to bring people back to him. My church will know that I am the God who searches minds and hearts. He says, um, 24, but to the rest of you in Theatra who do not hold these, these teachings, who have not learned, now this is kind of interesting, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Okay, Kind of pick this up. To those who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Right? So the Gnostics would say, come learn the deep things of God. Right? The true followers of Jesus Christ would say, those aren't deep things of God. <laughs> those are what? Deep things of Satan. This is from hell. And so what he's doing is he's commending this, this group of people who in this church have stood steadfast. So in this body that's tolerating Jezebel, there are people who are not. There are people that are saying, no, I will not tolerate that, right? And he's saying, for those of you who have stood fast and who have said, I'm not going to learn those deep things of Satan, here's God saying, I will not lay upon you more burden, all right? Um, Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. He's taking us to the end now. Hold fast what you have until I come. Hang on, church, hang on to my teachings and my truth until I come. That's what will get you through. Now, this verse 26 is one of my favorite, favorite verses in this, the seven letters. Just because of the way it's worded. He says, the one who conquers, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. It's taking us to the end now. Here's what I love about it. The one who conquers and who keeps, whose works? My works. There's the gospel right there. Don't miss it. Okay. How do I overcome? Not by my works, right? Look, God, look what I've done. I've been able to do this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And so now you need to, nope. The one who conquers is the one who does what? I keep his works. So when we stand before God and we're able to say, it's not on the basis of my works, but upon the basis of your works, Lord, that you receive me into eternity, that's what he's talking about. That's conquering. Conquering is not about what we do. It's about what he has done and holding fast onto those. So hold fast to those and I will give that person and those, those churches authority over nations. Verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as, with, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself received authority from my father. Where's that from, by the way? Those words are familiar to the original hearers, but not to us today, because they're Old Testament words. Just like Jezebel, 1 Kings, Old Testament, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, that's it right there, okay? So what I'm hearing, if I'm standing there listening to this being read to me, so I'm, I'm a part of the church in Theatra, when, when I hear Jesus say to me, um, I will give you authority over the nations that you will rule them with a rod of iron. 
two things go off in my mind. The first thing is I recognize that prior to Jesus' coming, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, what would he do? He would lift up Israel again, reestablish them as a physical kingdom here upon earth, and give them a rod of iron to smash down the nations around them. You know why most people miss Jesus? That's what they expected him to do. Take yourself, take yourself from wherever you're seating right now, put yourself forward seven days. Okay. If you're here seven days from now, here's what you'll be doing. You'll have a little palm in your hand and you'll be, you'll be a part of a parade and what will you be singing? Hosanna. Now say it in Hebrew. Hosanna. Hosanna. What am I saying? Save us. Deliver us. What kind of a word is it? It's a political word. It's a battlefield word. So as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, everybody is going, crush Romans. Smash our enemies. Where did they get that from? Psalm 2 and other psalms like it. They would turn back and they would say, when Messiah comes, here's how you're going to recognize him. He's going to crush the nations and reestablish Israel and put it back in the place that it was in the time of Solomon and David, back to our rightful place. We should be the ones who are ruling. So Jesus is on this colt, right? And he's riding into town and everybody's screaming at him, crush our enemies. Guess what Jesus is saying? I'm going to. I'm going to crush your enemies. It's not wrong. It's sin. It's death. And it's Satan himself. And I'm riding into Jerusalem because in just a few days, I'll go to a cross and I will crush the head of your enemy. Absolutely. I will save you. But not the way you think. So if I'm a, if I'm a, a, a hearer of these words, that's what my mind goes back to that psalm where I think, boy, the Israelites, what were they looking for? A physical kingdom that God would establish where he raises Israel up. What is he actually going to give you? Okay, don't miss this, and we'll close with it. What is he actually going to give you? This is kind of a fun thing. A physical kingdom where you will rule together all that exists with him. When will that kingdom take place? When he returns. Okay. Until then, what kind of a kingdom is it? It's a spiritual kingdom. Right? It's what you're a part of today. You're a part of what the old, the old Lutherans called the church militant. The church at war. Still coming against those enemies with his victory in our hands. Hold fast to his works. We will soon become everybody, unless Jesus returns tomorrow or in our lifetime, we'll become part of the church triumphant. We'll die. And we'll await that time when he does reestablish this world and you will rule with him, right? And, and the revelation will teach us uh, more about that as we go on. And so finally he says, and we'll come back to this next week, uh, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. And uh, I want to return to that as we, as we pick up next week because it's a beautiful picture of the, uh, remember the Magi? How did they know how to go to Bethlehem? How did they know it would be a star? Balaam. Balaam told them. We'll pick that up next week. Let's pray.